Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. You know, I've said before that one of the many privileges of doing this podcast is the wonderful people I get to chat with and share with you. Sometimes it's an old friend, sometimes a new friend. And today, a real blast from my past, Dr. Keith Hopcroft. A while back, I was in the EMJ offices who host this podcast, and one of the delightful young ladies who works there told me that she'd been chatting to her boyfriend about a conversation she'd had with me. Whereupon this chap apparently said, Sakia, my dad knew a bloke named Sakia. I wonder if it's the same one. Well, yep, same one. There aren't too many Sakias out there. And that led me to re-establishing contact with Dr. Keith Hopcroft, Small World. Keith qualified in 1984 from Charing Cross Hospital Medical School, where he won prizes in medicine and dermatology, which incidentally is my worst subject at med school. He trained as a general practitioner and became a member of the Royal College of General Practitioners and then a fellow of the Royal College of GPs thereafter. He also obtained other certifications and qualifications and has served as an honorary lecturer in the Department of Primary Care and Population Sciences at University College and the Royal Free Hospital Medical Schools, both in London, and as a medical student tutor for the Royal Free Hospital for many years, and also at the new Anglia Ruskin Medical School, when I, when I say new, within the last few years. Keith has been locality education facilitator for primary care education in South Essex, a general practice or GP trainer, and GP vocational training scheme course organiser. He's a fellow of the Higher Education Academy since 2007, although he tells me he's not even sure what that means, which, as you'll come to learn, is very much Keith's way of discussing things. You know, Keith has been a prolific writer, and I do mean prolific, for, for both for the medical and lay press, and we're going to get into that in a bit. The good doctor is married with two children, is a long-suffering Portsmouth football club fan, and is a mammal, a middle-aged man in lycra because he likes to cycle. He's an amateur astronomer, a tennis player and watcher and enjoys gazing at art. Keith told me when I, when I asked him, you know, tell me something that most people wouldn't know about you. He told me that Nick Cave, yes, the Nick Cave, trod on his foot at a gig and then swore at him as though it was his fault. He also told me that he didn't enjoy a freefall parachute jump in New Zealand as much as he'd anticipated because it confused freefall with weightlessness. And that's just the kind of thing that he would have said many years ago that cracked me up because Keith worked with me as my house officer. So I've been looking forward to this. Dr. Keith Hopcroft, what a total delight to have you with us today. Well, it's a delight to, to be here, Jonathan. I'm not sure I've got anything to add now to what you've, what you've said. I think the only thing I would say, yeah, emphasising the fact that uh, I was your, your, your houseman and what, what a delight that was. You were a superb registrar and a, a very supportive guy. Always appreciated that. But I would say that old habits do die, die hard. When we chat, I can't help thinking that somewhere along the line, uh, you're going to still ask me to put up a, an IVI in bed three or something like that. So there's always that slight tension between us, <laughs> I, I find. Well, I was going to say, you know, I was going to tell people that, that you, you joined me as, the, as house officer. And I, you know, I was a few years ahead of you, but it's not like it was 10 or 20 years. And, 
I always tell people that the lovely thing about going through medical training is the people who were your teachers, your professors, your consultants, when you achieve career um, parity, if you will, they become your friends. But there's always one or two who you're never quite comfortable calling by their first name. They're always prof or something. I, I, I know that you don't have that. I, I was actually going to ask you for some of your memories, the good ones, please, because I remember you as not only being not only being a very fine doctor, you genuinely cared for the patients. You were always polite to the nurses. You were always eager, and you actually cracked me up. You were great fun to have around there. So now you can't say anything snotty about me. Tell me some memories of being your first experiences of being a junior doctor. Well, thanks, Prof. Sorry, uh, Jonathan. That's uh, that, that's lovely. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was ages ago, wasn't it? But it, it it's still kind of indelibly seared into my memory banks. It was probably the most memorable character forming six months of my life. And I think, you, you know, the, the, the main memory I hold is of the, the incredible hard work and the amount that we learned as a, a result. And I don't want to sound like a kind of Jurassic superannuated doctor rambling on about how tough it was in the old days, but that is what I'm going to do because it, it was extraordinarily tough. This was in the days before shift work. And as you know, Jonathan, we worked what they called a one in two, which meant we were effectively on call every other night and up for a large part of that night as well. And then having to work the next day, it was, uh, it was pretty extraordinary. And also, I, I think a lot of the things that these days would, would get delegated to other people, we ended up having to do ourselves. I mean, we did all the IVIs, we did all the bloods, we did the ECGs, arterial bloods, because there were no pulse oximeters in those days. And I even did one job, it wasn't your job, but I did one, one job where I was even responsible for taking uh, chest x-rays. No, no kidding, I actually learned how to take chest x-rays out of hours hmm. so it, it it was an unbelievable learning curve uh, you know i mean more like a vertiginous sort of cliff really but i think amongst all of that there, there is one moment that really stands out this is where i'm going to sound very fluffy rather than than clinical and it was a moment probably in my first fortnight in the in the job and it really really taught taught me a, a, a valuable lesson and I was asked by the sister of ITU to speak to a family of a very, very uh, sick man on the, the unit. I think you were clearly very busy and the boss was super busy and I was the kind of last man standing to, to help. And I went and spoke to this family aware that I was completely out of my depth on this one. I really didn't know how, how to handle the situation, really didn't know what I was going to say felt that I bumbled my way through it, gave them time to to talk. And then, you know, it finished and I thought, well, I can't believe that I'll have helped that family in uh, in in any way whatsoever. But a couple of days later, the, the ward sister, actually, the ITU sister, I bumped into her and she actually commented that the family found it very, very valuable to, to talk to me, which I was actually, you know, thought perhaps she was being sarcastic, first of all, but actually, no, she was totally genuine. And indeed, I got a letter from the family uh, a short while afterwards uh, saying how valuable they, they felt it was talking to me and that, you know, they really appreciated me taking the time. And it was the first experience I ever had of what Baylint, in his very famous book that all GP trainees have to read, called The Doctor, His Patient and the Illness, he called it the drug doctor. It, it just taught me that there's much, much more to medicine than knowing all the clinical stuff. Just giving people time and a bit of space is so uh, appreciated. So, so that one 
uh, is one I never forgot. But I think the over, overarching composite image, Jonathan, is of you, me, loads of other knackered housemen and registrars sitting late in the mess about 10 o'clock in the evening, having probably not eaten, not slept for 48 hours, and finally uh, opening the takeaway curry, only inevitably for someone's bleep to go off. Uh, and the groans and the looks of sympathy or delight if it wasn't your bleep. I, I'll never, I'll never forget those moments. You know, when when I when I was a houseman, Keith, and I might have even told you this, I was so exhausted that you you developed this sort of paranoia, and I was convinced that when I finally got back to my room to try and grab a little bit of shut eye, I was convinced that somehow my light was connected to the switchboard because every time I turned my light off, my pager went off. So I, I stopped turning my light off. And then you begin to think that the, the takeaway box of whatever it might be, Indian or Chinese or whatever, or pizza, if you open the box, your beep goes off and you think, they've put some kind of sensor in this damn thing. It really was quite, quite an experience. So your comment about talking to families, and is it astonishing that the, the most powerful memory you have from, so this is 1638 years ago, you would almost certainly have had very little training in. I know when I yeah. first had to tell a family that someone had died and I realized going into the room, I was completely unprepared to do this. I was a kid and I'd had no training. It is the important thing, isn't it, about health care, really? Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it was the care element. And I guess until you experience that and you realize that the value that you can have simply by creating time for people, it's not something you can be taught until you experience it and then you realize uh, what a gift it is really. Yeah, so I want to go from the, the very profound and moving in a slightly different direction. So we're going to discuss medicine and your writing in a bit, but I, I want you to recount the tale of your one and only stage appearance, please. I think an opportunity was missed. I believe it was at the British Medical Association Review. You have to tell the story. Yeah, I've tried telling this story to various people uh, in the past and that no iteration of it in any way makes sense. Um, so I'll give it a go. I'm glad we're getting getting it over with early on because it's probably one of the most embarrassing and ill-judged uh, moments of my life. But anyway, here we go. So long time ago, Phil Hammond, who um, some UK listeners may, may know, is a very well-known uh, doctor, comedian, writer. He was responsible for an annual show that the BMA put on, which I'm pretty sure all proceeds went to charity. So it's a very honourable cause. And um, he and I had been talking because I'd been doing some writing for a radio show that he was uh, he was doing, and he was saying how desperate he was um, to. Uh, kind of fill the roster in this show because the idea with the show it was all doctors doing turns funny turns on stage or not so funny turns as it might turn out um, and he was having terrible trouble now I was going through a barely explicable phase at that time of writing poetry I fancied myself as a performance poet again um, some listeners may vaguely have heard of people like John Hegley or John Cooper Clark the famous punk poet and I went through a phase of thinking that, that 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 sounded rather fun and I'd quite like to do this. And I actually wrote some of this stuff, which was published in a, uh, a, a humorous, allegedly, uh, magazine called Rhesus Sardonicus. And one in particular I wrote because uh, it needed writing, Jonathan. Sardonic grin, right? 
the sardonic grin. Well done. Yes, the tetanic sardonic grin. Um, so the one that needed writing, clearly, um, gap in the market, um, was a, a, a tribute to the stool specimen in the diagnostic process. Oddly, never been dealt with in poetry before. So <laughs> I did uh, a poem about this, called it called it Ode to Toilet. So Ode to Toilet, Ode to, to Toilet. Yep, you get that. Brilliant. Um, I can remember barely nothing of it except the final rhyming couplet. So as I say, this is a peon to the stool specimen. So the final rhyming couplet was, forgive me for showing my emotion, but there's poetry in motions, which I think you'd agree is uh, genius. Now, um, I mentioned this to Phil. Phil said, right, you're on. I said to Phil Hammond, I've never been on stage before. I have a, a profound fear of appearing on stage. I don't even like giving lectures very much. So I said, I'll do it if you put me on right at the beginning. Phil being Phil, he stuck me on right at the end. All I can say is by the time I got on stage, I was, as they say, tired and emotional. Somehow I'd managed to persuade two of my colleagues at the magazine I was working for at the time, two, two uh, young ladies, to come and dance on stage in time to the poetry. Um, so there was me, two gyrating girls, and uh, my stage prop, which uh, and I, I can probably hear a whole load of people clicking off as I say this. Uh, my <laughs> stage prop was a, was a stool specimen in a in a pot. Now it wasn't a stool specimen. It was um, it was some uh, a, a well known brand of hazelnut spread in a stool uh, a stool pot. But it it it, it looked the job uh, as it were. I, anyway, I, I I finished the poem with the, the girl dancers, and the finish was my, that rhyming couplet I told you. At which point I threw the stool specimen into the crowd. A cue mayhem. Uh, I thought it went brilliantly, um, as but I would, um, but I was never invited back. So make of that what you will. But can we move swiftly on from that, Jonathan? Yeah, we we can. I'm just thinking. I have, uh, I was listening earlier to a podcast all about rhesus macaques who apparently like to throw their poo at people. So I just have this image of viewers as a macaque disseminating um we can say it's good lords nutella at the audience but uh, absolutely priceless you'd have got you'd have got an even bigger laugh if you'd have put your finger in and tasted it i'm telling you <laughs> opportunity missed maybe version two so let's come on to some of your creativity and start it from my perspective the very beginning you wrote a very fine tome shortly after your house jobs or internship for our American listeners called A Handbook for Houseman. And Keith, I have my copy in my hand right now. I promise you. What was your inspiration to write that? And what key lessons did you learn in that first year looking after patients other than what you've already mentioned in talking to Rellies? Yeah, I, I think the, the inspiration is pretty easy to articulate in in that uh, and so this was written with a friend of mine uh, David Baldwin who's remained a lifelong friend now professor of psychiatry at Southampton indeed my best man very 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 handy having a psychiatrist as a best man really good for the the panics and stuff but what he and I both realized um, pretty much in our first couple of weeks on the the ward and this was despite your you know fantastic support um, that we just weren't trained for this job um, we would we we felt our training sort of pitched us more as diagnosticians, but hadn't really prepared us properly for the nitty gritty of ward work. And it it struck us that it's really not much use 
for the average ward sister for us to be able to stand there and encant the sort of 15 causes of peripheral neuropathy, uh, but not be able to write up a, a, a drug chart. So we just thought we're, we're ill prepared for this. And also we noted there appeared to be a gap in the market, which is um, a, a useful skill when you when when you write to be able to spot where where something apparently hasn't been covered before. So it was that combination of seeing the need and noticing that it hadn't been filled um, that led us to, uh, to to pitch the idea forward. And uh, you know, it, it went it went pretty well. I'm looking at the cover now. You'll you'll know on the inside cover you're amongst the uh, uh, people it's dedicated to, Jonathan. And the front cover is a a picture of a houseman ripping off his shirt with a kind of Superman thing below it and in his in his pocket day one. And that, I think, I hope captures what the book's about. In terms of key lessons, oh, wow. I mean, there are so many. I think in the, the preface to the book, we, we described our feeling as kind of indignant ignorance. And I think probably the key, the key lesson for me was get over that, get over your indignant ignorance of what, you know, working on the ward is is like and um, just be humble, uh, introduce yourself to everyone, show your face, make sure people know you. I, I did try to make a point of you know making sure all the ward staff knew me by name. I would go to the x-ray department, I'd go to the labs and I found uh, you know that was a little effort uh, for them to be able to put a, a face to a name but it reaped huge dividends. Uh, in terms of when inevitably, as a houseman, you do, you have to beg people for favours because you've forgotten to do that full blood count and Sakia is breathing down your neck uh, and you need it done rapidly. Um, so I, I think cultivating that team ethic. And I think the other thing is just the, the need to be reliable. Again, the ward staff will value you much more highly, not because you're a, a diagnostic genius, uh, but because you do what what what's required and you do it in time. And again, I found that with writing. I think one of my assets, if I have any, is, you know, is being able to write to a deadline. Uh, it's no good writing a piece for an editor that is brilliant, incisive, witty, and and just fantastic. If you deliver it two days beyond deadline, uh, a, an editor would far rather have something that's written to the sort of eighty percent level, uh, but have it to fill the page rather than have a, a blank page. So reliability was a big thing. You know, I'm I'm sitting here smiling, Keith, because there's someone who shall remain nameless who I've been trying to explain a lesson to that 99% of success in this world has got nothing to do with talent. It's got nothing to do with skills. It's about being a nice human being, being humble, being kind, being respectful, making yourself available to people and stuff follows and the people will help you if you're nice to them. It's, it's a very, very good lesson. So I think you're bang on. So let's get into your career path um, and we'll come back to the writing. So you joined Langdon Healthcare Centre in Basildon in Essex uh, in 1988, where you've worked as a GP ever since. So tell us how wonderful it is to have general practice as a job and then we're going to come at it from the other direction okay that's a leading question but it is a wonderful job in fact i would argue genuinely that it's the best job in the world obviously i've done all the other jobs so i know it is definitely the best one and uh, genuinely also if i had my time again i would do it all uh, again and if you speak to any of the medical students who pass through and we have quite a lot they will tell you i am always banging on and maybe i protest death too much but i am always going on about what a wonderful job it is i chose my path pretty early I had a brief dalliance with dermatology, your least favourite subject, which I, I found fascinating. I, my dermatology teacher 
uh, was uh, a wonderful man called Dr. Cream. There's a, a case of nominative determinism, if there ever was one. And he very nearly persuaded me. But no, uh, it was always general practice for me. I loved my general practice attachments when I was a student. Uh, I, I, I just basically had an epiphany when I went on them and thought, actually, do you know what? This is where real medicine happens. This is where uh, the real stuff occurs. And also a little bit of disillusionment with with the kind of slightly dehumanizing aspects of hospital medicine. But it's just been the most fantastic job. I mean, I think, I can't remember where, but somewhere I wrote and described it as like something, something like this, if I get this right, it's like, I described it as it's like do every day, it's like doing the Times crossword while walking a tightrope across a river of alligators, while someone hits you in the face with a plank. Now, I probably don't need to explain that simile to you, but, you know, I will. Um, the Times crossword's obviously the intellectual challenge. The tightrope is obviously the hazards of getting something wrong. And being hit in the face with a plank is because you are hit in the face with a plank every day but by virtue of all the distractions and diversions and interruptions. But, I mean, what's not to like about that? If you like people and you like puzzles it's just brilliant that's that's what I spend all day doing and to those who'd say as some students do it's all costs colds and trivial some of that but quite seriously Jonathan last few weeks in my humble general practice I've had a case of infective endocarditis I've had a case of pigeon fancier's lung actually parrot fancier's lung but you get the drift and a probable Addison's and that's all within the last few weeks so you see anything and everything and you, you, you don't know what's coming through the door. One of my favorite things when I have the students is after we've done a morning surgery and they've sat in, is to, is to go back over each patient and, and look at what category it falls into. And very often we find we've covered probably two thirds of the medical curriculum uh, just by one surgery because we see such a breadth of stuff. Wow, and again, for the benefit of those listeners not familiar with the term in, in Britain, a general practitioner's office is called his or her surgery. Um, but you're absolutely right, Keith. But then again, some of it is just, you know, someone who's a bit lonely, um, who needs a bit of reassurance. You know, I, I have a, a friend who calls every single week, convinced that he's dying of something or another. And I, I tell him, you're eventually going to be right. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not best a, equipped to deal with this. But, you know, just a bit of reassurance and a bit of kindness. And again, you're, you're bringing health care to people. So let's go to the flip side. What's happening to erode the role of the general practitioner? And why is that a disaster from your perspective? Maybe one of the things you can address is uh, the changes to continuity of care that you, you, you hinted at earlier when we were first talking. There's a lot of erosion of the GP role. And I, I think probably three main areas one one's the the gatekeeper aspect one's the sort of the denigration of that minor illness role that i've hinted at already and one is is the continuity it, it just to briefly kind of expand uh, as i won't go on at length but just the, those three areas because i really really do feel strongly about them because this is did i mention this was the best job in the world and um, i i don't want it to be spoiled so first of all the erosion of the gate, gatekeeper role so i think the system certainly in the uk is is brilliant You've got GPs with their real breadth of knowledge and you've got specialists with a, a, an amazing depth of knowledge. Or if you want to be flippant about it, then there's the odd saying that GPs know nothing about everything, whereas specialists know everything about nothing. But if you put those two things together, 
you actually end up with what I think is a fantastic system whereby as the gatekeeper, as the filter, we kind of only let through to the specialist those patients who really need to see a specialist and need that depth of assessment and depth of intervention. And GPs, I think, are really good at that. We're really good at knowing what's normal. Hospital doctors, I don't think, see much normal, but we do. Or we see things that are only slightly abnormal. Okay, And we don't need those to have the in-depth investigation you get through specialists. So it's a really safe, it's a really effective, and it's a really economical uh, system. But um, if you have other factors kick in, things start to get undermined. So one of those factors is in increasing access, which I think we, we probably will return to as a, a, a topic. It's a big deal in the UK at the moment. You, you also have the, the job being staffed by um, other members of, of, of the team. Now, I'm a big, big fan of the, the, the team. And, and these people work really, really hard. And they're, they're, they're incredibly well-intentioned. But I do feel that a lot of them aren't trained up to the, 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 the role. They're less experienced than GPs are. They don't have the breadth of knowledge. But the key thing, often they don't have that ability to tolerate uncertainty uh, that GPs have. And that leads to the gate opening wider and a big rush through the gate. And that in turn leads to more referrals, more investigation, more, more costs, more iatrogenesis, all sorts of problems. So that's one area. Another area is this denigration of the minor illness role that I'll just mention briefly. I'd, I've, I've always had a big thing about minor illness and people being sniffy about, oh, you just see coughs, colds and so on. But I'd argue, look, a lot of this is only minor in, in retrospect. I've seen a lot of major illness present with, you know, inverted commas, minor symptoms. So uh, take sore throat. I've seen probably half a dozen cancers present with a sore throat, a couple of lymphomas, a few leukemias, one tonsillar. Uh, cancer. And I think GPs are really, really good at spotting the sort of the needle uh, in the haystack, the, the kind of really serious pathological needle in the haystack of, of uh, apparent uh, trivia. But the reverse applies as well. GPs are really, really good when they know something is normal or just you know, is trivial minor illness. They're very, very good at, at explaining that to the patient and saying, do you know what? A, you don't need to worry. B, this is what's going to happen and how long it'll take for your cough or cold to go away. You don't need to seek further help unless X, Y, or Z happens. You need no investigation. You need no treatment. Everyone thinks the patients there are always for antibiotics. Not so. They're often there for reassurance and explanation. As long as that's done properly, I think that's a really valuable uh, part of our role that, that is, is being lost. And lastly, continuity. Continuity is really, really interesting, I think, believe it or not. I think that there's no doubt we know it produces better health outcomes. We know it's cost effective. We know you get better patient satisfaction. But it's a bit more nuanced, actually, than most people think, because it, it, continuity isn't the same thing to everyone. And it doesn't always ne necessarily mean you have to have the same doctor. You can have continuity of illness. And what I mean by that is if you take take three groups, take the elderly with a lot of chronic disease, they really, really do benefit from continuity. Those with polypathology, polypharmacy, very helpful for them to have the same doctor. And very often the access issue isn't a problem because often their appointments are not urgent. It's ongoing management. So they may be prepared to wait a week or two to see the doctor that offers them continuity. Now, at the other end of the scale of that, you've got acute illness. Take something like cystitis. 
where it really doesn't matter to hoots what doctor they see for an isolated episode or something like that. And in fact, that's one area, again, we may talk about AI, that's one area where an algorithm should be able to sort them out and continuity really isn't needed. But there's a middle layer here, and this is where it gets nuanced, in, in, particularly in primary care, of people with sort of subacute evolving illness. So take someone with sort of low-grade new onset abdominal pain they've had for a few weeks, not bad enough to send them in acutely, not at this point making sense enough to refer them with a specific question. And their continuity is so, so helpful where you can have a clear plan, a clear sense of direction. You don't omit things, you don't duplicate things. One of the things that really makes my heart sink is when I see a patient who's had a problem for, say, a couple of months, so subacute, and they've already seen four or five different doctors or nurse practitioners. It's really, really difficult to sort that out. But someone has to kind of get a hold of that. And we encourage that in the practice. We, I mean, we call that serial monogamy. So there it's not necessarily, you know, continuity doesn't have to be about seeing the same doctor every time for everything. But seeing the same doctor to see through that new problem is very, very important, both for the patient and the health service as well, I think. We were always taught in my surgery training that your most important diagnostic step is to ascertain if the patient's sick or not. And you're right, in, in hospital, we're, we're already seeing a pre-selected group of patients yeah, fascinating. So you, you qualified a number of decades ago, young man. Much has changed. Unload on how you feel about certain things. So let's start with this, this obsession with management, appraisals, top-heavy management. And I swear, you know, some change is good. Change, movement towards something better is, is progress. It's velocity. But movement for the sake of it is just brownian motion. And I think... I swear, I think I'm going to lose it every time I hear someone refers to patients as clients. So give us your thoughts, doctor. Yeah, I'm clenching, I'm clenching my jaw and other bits of my anatomy, even as you say that. So I'm conscious the listener might just feel this is two grumpy old doctors talking. And indeed, it is two grumpy old doctors. But in terms of column fodder and blog fodder, the, the, the top heavy management stuff is uh, it's a gift from heaven, A, because it's so easy to write at shooting fish in a barrel and B, uh, because uh, you resonate with your listeners. So I'm not I'm not going to spend too long on this because it, it, it uh, I just as a clinician, everyone agrees. Uh, and yet the non-clinicians continue to pour this slurry on top of us. But on a, on a tiny weeny level, it drives me mad. So every time I open up the records of a new patient in my surgery to even get to the page I want to get to, which is basically, you know, the ongoing issues and consultations, I have to wade through a kind of deluge of pop-ups on my screen telling me um, this patient needs this a uh, quaff box ticked. A quaff for non-UK doctors is a, a quality and outcome framework. I won't go into it in detail. Uh, it's a, a management imposition, which is supposed to demonstrate good care. Don't get me started. Uh, there'll be another pop box saying the patients do this screening. There'll be another pop box saying, could you change them from that drug to this drug? Because there's a local initiative which shows that this drug or that drug is cheaper. There'll be another box popping up saying this patient needs an immunization. It just drives me mad that there are just so many things in the way. And there are so many people putting their agendas on my screen that gets in the way of my interaction with the patient. Um, that, you know, it's just 
too much. And the irony, of course, using this particular example, is that those pop-ups eventually are useless because all all of us do is just click click them out of the way to get to the part we want. And therefore, the one that is really useful, which no doubt you spotted in that little list I gave you, Jonathan, immunizations, that's the one you really want to get, you just ignore because there's just too much stuff getting in the way. So that's at a very low level. Um, at a higher level, yeah, I mean, I, I could say, I think you mentioned appraisal, yeah. I've been an appraisal, uh, appraisal denier, but appraisal objector, uh, for as long as it's been uh, around, I, I, I'm sorry for any appraisers listening to this. Look, I actually think you do a really good job because it's not a job I could do. And I think when I've had my appraisals, I thought, you know, actually, you've done that very well, except for the fact I think the whole process is a complete waste of time, despite the fact they've actually done it very well. And I genuinely believe that. And even worse than that, I actually find appraisal uh, demoralizing. I find it vaguely insulting. And the reason I say that is because I just naively or not, I believe that you and I, all the other doctors, we're all professionals. Any self-respecting professional is doing what the appraisal uh, requires us to do all of the time anyway. I look up every day. I know it sounds woolly, and, and, and soft educationalist, but it's true. Every day I learn something, truly, um, often multiple things. Every day I look up stuff between patients, even during patients, not a problem. They don't mind. They're happy for us to look up stuff so that we can tell them what the current guidance has to say. So this is a process that's just going on constantly. And I really, really object. And for those who are perplexed at what the hell I'm talking about here, what I'm talking about is the way the UK system works, where I have to demonstrate to my appraiser uh, that I am doing this stuff by recording what I've looked up, recording my reflections on it and recording how it's changed my practice. I just object to that. It's incredibly time consuming. It's insulting to think I'm not doing it automatically and that I therefore have to demonstrate it. And I just think there are enough checks and balances in the system already if you want to pick out the few bad apples. And genuinely, Jonathan, and I've written on this before, if the argument is, well, look, do you know what? We need some quality update check every so often. Fine. Absolutely fine. Just give us an MCQ every three years based on clinical knowledge, because I think there's good evidence to show that your basic clinical knowledge is a proxy marker for how you perform generally. I could swallow that. I could cope with that. We, we, we'd do that. And then the idea would be that the lowest, I don't know, 5% gets subjected to the full appraisal process. I'd realise at this point, uh, even I realise, Jonathan, I appear to be ranting. Uh, it's a really hot day. And I think I've just got a lot hotter. And it's your fault. <laughs> I'm, I'm into aviation, Keith. And you, you have to do a flight check you know, a biannual flight review where you go up with, with someone who, who checks you out. And But diligent pilots are constantly doing continuing education. There are a huge documentation about the flying that we do. And I've always considered when I've done my biannual flight reviews, I started by saying, at the end of today, I do not expect you to do anything other than sign me off but I expect you to teach me at least three things that I don't know. Now I've been flying for many, many years. And if, if appraisals worked in that way, if we had some kind of oversight of our capabilities, our results speak for themselves. You know, obviously one wants to avoid the things like the shipment tragedies where you, you have a, you know, a rogue doctor, but I'm, I'm in agreement with you. And I think sometimes it's just change for change's sake. So you've mentioned access a couple of times. 
and people talk a lot about it. And a lot of it strikes me as being woke speak and nothing is political is correct in my book. Well, I, I think you're, the way you've summarised that there is, a, is, again, I keep using this word nuance, but it's a good word, uh, a much more nuanced look at, at, at how it's viewed in the UK at the, at the moment. I think there's just a, whether it's wokeness or it certainly seems to be a political imperative, the, the, the powers that be want to improve access to GPs pretty much ad nauseam. Now, I, I would be the first to admit we do have a bit of an issue at the moment, and that's because we don't have enough GPs, despite it being the best job in the world. Um, we don't have enough, and therefore some of the weights are currently unacceptable. But that aside, the direction of travel at the moment is such that it's not access. It, it, what they're really pitching for is excess. And I'm going to sound incredibly doctor-centred here, but actually, if you if you hear me out, and I know I've, I've warbled on for way too long, so I'll try and keep this quick. Something like between 30 and 75% and more towards that latter figure of symptoms presenting in primary care defy diagnosis. So something like nearly three quarters of, of symptoms that come to us are not diagnosable, not because we're stupid. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the medically unexplained symptoms, which is, is a bona fide diagnosis in itself, which refers to a sort of subgroup who have investigation and continuous symptoms. I'm just talking about the everyday symptoms that people get. Nearly three quarters of the time, there will be no diagnosis, there will be no explanation. And this is, of course, only the number of symptoms that get as far as the GP. Some of these symptoms people do nothing about. Some of them, they take them to the pharmacy. But it's only the tip of that iceberg that even gets to the GP. Now, the vast majority of these symptoms are self-limiting, transient, totally harmless, which is great. But what it means is, clearly, there's a heck of a lot of symptoms out there. And the problem is, if you start to lower the bar to consulting a clinician, well, you can see where this is going to go. And it's happening already because one of the mandates to the, the latest iteration of the GP contract was that we should have online consulting, which is, you know, fine, got no problem. But the immediate effect that we've seen is the lowering of the threshold for people to approach us regarding problems that they wouldn't have approached us with otherwise. Uh, and that, you know, often very whimsical ones as well. For example, a colleague of mine had something along the lines of it was quite clearly a man who'd come home from the pub and decided off the top of his head just to think that actually this is probably the correct time to send a message to my GP asking him if he has any idea what causes that buzzing in my left nipple whenever I lean on one side, that sort of thing. Now, there's actually a really strong argument to keep those kind of symptoms away. So although it sounds doctor-centered, the fact that people sometimes have to wait a little while for appointments and that there are perceived barriers is not necessarily a bad thing. Because if you take your finger out of the dam, there's a whole lot of symptoms out there and if we start looking at those as we do the ones that actually already get through to us, you are going to have an incredibly overloaded system and you're going to have a very, very over-medicalised population. I guess that's a good time to surface uh, AI. You can't have a conversation about healthcare without someone mentioning. So, um, and I, I hate the term because I'd like to see real intelligence, let alone artificial. So, how does AI play into this? And, you know, there are these symptom 
um, apps that you can get that you can, and in fact, the NHS I know has done deals with them, but what role do they play? How useful could they be? Yeah, it's good. That's a good, a really great question. I, I use those apps to teach um, students with. Uh, it's a really, we have a really interesting afternoon where I get them to play with three or four of those apps and work out for them. But by, they play the patient uh, in various scenarios and uh, the penny drops as they're, as they're doing it as to you know, what areas it might be helpful for and, and what areas it all falls apart. So um, I'm certainly not a Luddite with this. I can, I can see the use. I mentioned earlier, you know, when we were talking about continuity, that there are certain scenarios that lend themselves very nicely, potentially to a very binary kind of diagnostic process, acute, clear-cut uh, problems. And I can certainly see the value of AI in, in um, other areas where all the data is definitely there in front of you. So, for example... Uh, radiology, I think it has its uses in. I believe I'm right in saying um, that AI has been shown to be, in terms of um, interpreting retinoscopy, I think it's been shown to be better than an ophthalmologist. But if there are any ophthalmologists listening, I'm sure they'll put me put me right on that. But where I have an issue is where um, the powers that be think they can apply it to primary care indiscriminately because when you start to do that, all that shows the only thing it proves is that you don't know anything about primary care. Um, because a few facts to explain that point. First of all, most presentations in primary care don't lend themselves to an algorithm. And this is what my students learn. So the, the patients with polysymptoms, the patients with vague symptoms, tiredness, that kind of thing, really, really is unbelievably difficult to sort out. Take a young mum who's presented her child with an upper respiratory tract infection six times in the last six months, okay? The patient may well not be the child. The patient may be the young mum because she's stressed, depressed or whatever. Now, AI is not going to pick that up. The other thing, um, and I'll probably draw the line at this. I could go on uh, a, a lot, but I won't. Um, but I think is really important, and I, I, I really like bringing this up um, because it, it, to me it was the most valuable thing I ever learned about general practice ever, and here it is that many, many times patients come to see the GP not wanting to know what is wrong with them, but wanting to know what isn't wrong with them. And to give you a typical example, uh, the patient with headache, all right? Yeah, think about headache. We all get headaches. And, you know, maybe we take some painkillers, we go to the pharmacist or whatever. So why do patients come to the GP with headache? Well, lots of reasons, but one of the common reasons is because they're worried they've got a brain tumour. And if you overlook that fact, you, you miss the point. And what I mean by that is that there have been a number of occasions where I've seen a patient with, uh, with headache and do my usual 99% diagnosis by the history, a little bit of examination, look in the fundi, and then finish by starting my spiel, which goes somewhere along the lines of, I've had a good look at you, listen to what you said. Glad to say, the first thing I'm going to say to you is that no signs of anything serious, and in particular, no signs of a brain tumour or anything like that. Sometimes that may be a fear of the, patient, uh, the patient's voice, or sometimes I'm just assuming that is the case. But the number of times when I've said that, and I was going on to say to the patient, but what I do think you have is whatever, migraine, whatever, and we can do this, that, or the other. But they're, they're, they're already out of their seat. They're probably halfway down to the pub to celebrate because they don't care what it is. They just care what it isn't. And that is such a feature of general practice and such a thing that AI doesn't get. AI thinks the diagnostic process is patient walks in with clear-cut symptom, put it into the mixer, out pops the diagnosis. General practice is nothing like that. 
And that often isn't the agenda anyway. Beautifully said. So um, as we head into the home stretch, I want to talk a little bit about your writing. I'm going to ask you for just for bullet points for this answer, because then I want a longer answer for the next one, the, the, the one after that. This next question, you've been you were involved in writing about men's health issues and you said that you had had cause to consider some myths. Give us some of the myths surrounding men's health and do this as bullet points, Dr. Hopcroft. I will do it as bullet points because I I always do and always did what you say, Prof Sakier. Now, I'm going to give you just two. I'll expand on one really briefly and the other I'm just going to throw it out there in controversial fashion. So number one, men attend, men attend the health services far less than women. That's, that's the first myth. You hear that trotted out all the time. Silly old men, they don't come to the doctor as often as they should. It's nonsense, or at least it's nearly nonsense. If you look at the polarities of age, so the very young, the very old, there's no difference at all uh, gender-wise in terms of attendance. So, okay, we're looking uh, mainly at the 20s to, what, 50s, 60s maybe. But if you actually drill down into that, something interesting happens. If you actually extract from the figures those things that are gender-specific, and I'm talking gender here in the traditional sense of the word, just to clarify that point. So for example, with women, if you take out of the stats, mammography, smears, family planning, HRT, contraception, and you do the same for men, which basically amounts to what prostates, penises, and testicles, then do the stats. And you will find that that, that depending on which research you read, that that difference, that, that difference that people always bang on about between male and female attendance, it just vaporizes or it virtually vaporizes. There is virtually no difference really in how often uh, men attend the, the, the certainly primary care services compared to women. So that's one that I'm very fond of. The other one that I'm just going to tease you with because it's so counterintuitive and controversial, but I really feel strongly about and did probably my most fun piece of investigative journalism on is the one that is also trotted out every time there's a men's health day, week, month, whatever it is. And that is that men should routinely, regularly self-examine their testicles. Just to emphasize, I'm not arguing against them having a little feel around and checking if they feel they've got a problem. So they get a symptom or a heaviness or an ache, makes perfect sense for them to check. But to routinely ritually, regularly examine in the absence of symptoms, in other words, self-screen, is completely non-evidence-based and completely nonsensical when you go into it. Believe me, I've gone into it. I'll send you the link. Fantastic. That's exactly the sort of provocative thing I want. And it gets you invited back to talk about it in more detail. So I want to, I want to get a bit into your writing, and I'm going to do a little bit of a pricey, if you will, of the things you've written. But I want you to think of a couple of quick stories about your writing, because, boy, this guy's done a lot of writing. He's written for the General Practice Press for over 25 years and for the last 12 as editorial advisor to a magazine called Pulse um, uh, for, for general practitioners and associated websites. He's written a weekly blog under a pseudonym for 25 years, won the Medical Journalist of the Year Award, been shortlisted for the PPA Awards, columnist of the year on five occasions, medical writer for the lay press for just about every UK national newspaper from the Times to the Sun. Now there's a spectrum. And the Scotsman, let's go north of Hadrian's Wall, the Sky at Night magazine, good Lord, the Women's Institute magazine, 
and uh, I mentioned Men's Health, written for numerous things, including some cracking good books like A Bloke's Diagnose-It-Yourself Guide to Health, as well as books for colleagues. You've also written radio scripts for Phil Hammond, who you mentioned earlier, and also had a regular pseudonym, pseudonymous, I can't even speak, slot on the radio show Case Notes. So other than saying, damn fine work, young man, two or three of your best stories, Keith. Oh, mate, that's, uh, that's so hard. <laughs> that is such a hard question. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two very, very quick stories, uh, 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 not, not about what I've written about, but about the, the, the process, both from ages ago, and, and one of which shows some real attitude and one of which shows some real naivety, but I, I will keep them short. Is that okay? So the, the attitude was around Handbook for Housemen. So when, when David and I had this idea for the Handbook for Housemen, uh, we knew nothing. We knew nothing about the publishing process. We were just so wet behind the ears. But we wrote a, a we pitched it to, um, I hope I can say the publishers, Blackwell's, uh, with some sample chapters and a, an outline and all the rest of it. And we got back. How, what can I say? It was, um, it was a, a curt response that was, you know, verging on the, on, on the, on the, the pretty unkind, uh, basically saying, who the hell do you, do you think you guys are? Why would anyone want to read this? Uh, and um, it, it rather took the wind out of our, our sails. But a couple of things. First of all, the letter that Blackwells wrote back to us was actually really poorly done. It had all sorts of typographical and syntactical errors in it. And also in the interim, somehow David had managed to get uh, the, the late, great Jonathan Miller on board, who'd agreed to write some blurb. The Jonathan Miller uh, UK People may well know, famous neurologist, famous broadcaster, uh, producer, humorist. He'd agreed to write some blurb. And we'd also got Richard Smith, editor of the BMJ, uh, who, who we had actually got to know when we won a, a medical school journal competition, uh, who'd agreed to write the foreword. So we wrote back to Blackwell's saying, well, you may think that, but Jonathan Miller and Richard Smith would beg to differ. And why wouldn't people wish to read this? And also, we enclose a copy of your letter, which is so appallingly written that we've sub-edited it and done the corrections for you. And we're not sure we'd want you to publish it anyway, frankly. Two weeks after that, we got a phone call from them saying, can we meet up? The rest was, was history. So I think showing a bit of attitude sometimes pays dividends. The naivety came, was actually around about the same same time when the first article I ever wrote for the GP press, I sent in an article to GP magazine on spec. This wasn't commissioned. I just, you know, I'd come across a patient with acne in when I was a GP trainee. I discovered they were injecting themselves with steroids. I looked into the subject. I phoned local gyms, found out this was going on all over the place. Cars coming into car parks, opening up the boot once a week with steroids, HCG, growth hormone, testosterone, a bit like the ice cream van, uh, but probably a bit more unhealthy and no jingle. Um, and and the, these young guys were pumping themselves with all this stuff. I thought this was really interesting. So I wrote it up as a, a sort of a feature, sent it on spec to GP magazine. Lo and behold, they published it. Beautiful double page spread, probably the proudest day of my journalistic career. First article I'd ever had published. Blow me a month later, I got a check in the post. I got a check for I was about 100 quid. That was back in 1986. That was quite a lot of money. I had no idea you'd get paid. Genuinely, in my naivety, I just thought the reward was, was having your name published. I actually phoned them up 
I phoned GP Magazine and said, can I just check, is this correct that I get paid? I thought they'd mistaken me for an employee or a proper journalist. And they said, no, no, that's right. We pay, you're effectively a freelancer. And they said, you know, would you like to do some more? And that was how it all started. But I genuinely didn't know that you could monetize this hobby of mine. So, uh, you know, it's been great fun since. So um, final question, Keith. I love asking every guest a version of this. If you had three wishes that would lead to an improvement in human health, what would they be? Now, I, I, I feel terrible here. But do you know what? I've done my homework. I listened to some of your podcasts and I'm now going to be a regular listener. Uh, they're really great, Jonathan. And um, so I knew this, this question was coming as well. So I have had time to have a, a, a thing. And I'm also aware that really I should be showing myself as uh, an honourable, respectable, globally thinking doctor coming up with some very, very worthy uh, answers to your question. But I just wanted to say to you, I know that. I, I should be talking about mass vaccination, clean drinking water, all of that stuff. I know that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Okay. This is my moment and I'm going to be totally self-centered and specify what I want for me. So number one, I want all guideline producing bodies like NICE. I don't know if everyone's familiar with NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. It's got a different name now, but that's what it is. Uh, they, they produce all the guidance in, in the, in the, well, in England anyway. I want all guideline producing bodies like NICE to pass all their pronouncements through a common sense slash practicality filter which would render them both concise and doable because that doesn't happen. In addition, and this isn't one of my three options, this is a sub-option, I want them to include far more grassroots GP representation on their guideline bodies to get some common sense thrown in there. And this isn't one of my three options, this is a subsection to the subsection. I want those GP representatives specifically to be GPs with no interest in the particular guideline. So if you are doing a guideline on Parkinson's, it must not be a GP with a special interest in Parkinson's because you need the GP with the balance, with the knowledge that actually GPs are trying to do everything. It's not a, a sole drum banging exercise. So you need grassroots GPs inputting into this stuff. So that's number one, if you will allow that. Number two, I would like doctors writing letters to patients to make them comprehensible okay in the uk there's a mandate whereby um, letters must be copied to uh, patients uh, and what consultants tend to do is they will just write uh, the letter that they, they were writing to the gp anyway complete with all the medical terminology uh, which might as well be greek for all the use it is to to patients and i once wrote a column on this and i deliberately wrote the first two paragraphs in greek uh, to make the, the, the point. And actually, do you know what? Thinking about this, Jonathan, you're an entrepreneurial type. You get your entrepreneurial teeth into this. What about uh, a kind of Google Translate for hospital uh, letters? Genuinely, I think that, you know, that could be a great idea. In other words, some kind of software that you could put hospital letters through that translate it into patient speak uh, would be really valuable and would also save those wasted consultations I have where I'm actually translating uh, for a patient. Uh, but the other final wish I, I wanted to, to say, a very personal one, is just that, that I, I would be a very happy man never to have a consultation uh, with a patient uh, complaining that he or she feels tired all the time. Uh, ever again. I must have done it thousands of times. I don't think I've ever found a cause yet. And um, so please no more, uh, if that's okay. Uh, and that's it. Do you grant these wishes, Jonathan? I wish I had the power. I have to tell you, I just had a, a doctor's appointment myself, and I've actually written back to the to the doctor in question and said, 
you actually listened to me. You know, I told him and his team I was very thoroughly evaluated for an issue. And I told them that when they were speaking to me, you know, at a certain uh, educational level, should we say, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a doctor. And they changed their, their speak. And the letter that was copied to me was actually detailed and spoke to the issue. So kudos to that doctor. Um, and I agree with you, though. We have an obligation. Part of the if you if you solve the patient's problem, but you then make them anxious about what you said in the bloody letter, you haven't solved any problem at all. Keith, sadly, that's all we've got time for today. But I think there's a perfect setup. We've got to have you back on, and we've got to talk some more about your writing. I want to thank you so much, Keith, uh, for taking the time to join me today, for all you do for patients, and also for coming back into my life. It's been a privilege knowing you. And it's been a privilege having you on today. That's really sweet, Jonathan. Uh, it's uh, been an absolute uh, pleasure. Um, do, do you want me to put that drip up now, by the way? <laughs> no, and you can go and get some rest and you can answer your phone. So, folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on social media. That's apparently the thing you have to say these days. Um, and that's with the EMJ podcast. And please subscribe for future episodes and dig into our archives because there's plenty of wonderful podcasts there. And then please join us next week for another foray into the amazing world of medicine. Unless, of course, you want to talk about being tired all the time. Until then, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. 